Amen. Well, that's humbling, and I appreciate the faithfulness and the leadership and the wisdom that I've received from the pals. So it's been a great thing to have them on board since the very beginning. So really grateful for them. I don't even know why I'm preaching right now, to be quite honest, but we got to finish this series. And uh, so go ahead, if you have your Bible, grab it and uh, turn to 1 Peter. We're wrapping it all up. This is week 16, 1 Peter 5. We're going to be going through verses 6 through 14. Um, But actually, you know what, before you go to chapter 5, let's go back to chapter 1, because I want to go back, I want to remind ourselves of Peter's opening address to the church, what was the thing that he was trying to communicate with this, uh, with this series of churches who he called uh, elect exiles? Um, one of the things we want to do when we read God's Word is we don't want to just read a passage in isolation, but we want to take it in context, right? We want to go back, we want to consistently go back and get the big idea of what the author of that particular book and text is trying to say to us. So let's just do a little bit of a review before we get into today's passage, because really what Peter's been hitting at for us, if you've noticed throughout all of these different weeks we've been going through this, he's been hitting at our identity, right? And when you get right into chapter 1 there, he addresses the these people as elect exiles. He says, you've been elect, you've been chosen by God. Everything that you are going through has been preordained by God. There's nothing that's outside of his sovereign control. And then when you get a little bit further down into chapter one, he talks about being born again into a living hope. He's saying there's been a rebirth process that's happened in your life, and what it's done is it's produced a hope, not just a hope of something better to come about in this particular life, but an eternal hope that you have in Christ because you've been born again in him. And then you go further down, and you see him saying things like, man, you have been guarded now. Your faith is guarded by God's power. Not only that, but when you go through trials, trials are a means and a way in which God tests you because he wants you to have a genuine faith. So in all of this, what Peter's trying to remind us of over and over again, which is what he's reminding these churches of, is that there's a purpose. We have a purpose and our identity is rooted in Christ, which gives us the purpose for which all things happen in our life. And then when you get to verses 14 and 15 there in chapter 1, this was his admonishment and his encouragement. He says, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. There's Peter just being straight with us, right? He lays it all out. But he said, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So that's really why we named this series Holiness and Hope, because the big drive of Peter is saying, hey, it's God's intent to make you a holy and set apart people for his calling. And the way that he does this, the way that he develops us and grows us in holiness is through hard times, is through suffering, is through trials. And what I was thinking about as I was getting to the end of this book, because, man, we have just been hammering out suffering, haven't we? I mean, like, we don't make it easy for anybody to come to this church if we're talking about what Jeff just said. You know, we just, hey, we'll go through First Peter. He talks about suffering. None of it's, like, really pleasant. None of it's super fun. You know, we're not up here doing the big, like, light spectacular sermons. We're talking about suffering for, I don't know, like 16 weeks, right? That's what we've been doing. And, um, but what's interesting is that I think at this point, we don't know why God allows us to suffer. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We don't know why God allows us to suffer. We know that he does. We also know that we want to accept the wisdom 
that God has in allowing us to suffer because we understand that in his wisdom, he knows things that we don't know, and he has a plan that we can't yet see fully fleshed out. So we go back to God by trusting uh, in him. So there's a sense, after we get through this, I think that we can almost accept suffering in some ways, right? We can read this, we can believe this, our knowledge about suffering has grown. We can accept suffering. Here's the question that we're going to hopefully try to answer this morning, is we can accept it, but how do we endure through it? So I accept that God uses suffering in my life to grow me into greater confirmation of the image of Christ, but how do we endure it, right? How do we endure it? So, man, when I lived in California, I... I, 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 love, I love jackets and shoes. There's my, uh, there's my uh, that's what I'm going to admit to you guys all this morning. There's my confession. I like buying jackets. Now, if you're in California, I mean, the question would be, like, do you really need jackets, right? And you don't find a lot of, like, big REI, like, North Face jackets just in, you know, in groves over in California. It's just a bunch of thin jackets. It's like for fashion, right? So you buy jackets because when you, you know, when you go out at night, you like to pretend that it's cold. And it's not really cold, but you put on a jacket, uh, you know, for, for a fashion. Now, here's the thing. So I moved to Ohio six and a half years ago. And the problem with Ohio is that, like, you actually need a real jacket when you lived here. So for the, like, for the first five years, I was still wearing California jackets. And, uh, like, I've literally been freezing for five years <laughs> since moving to Ohio. And I was wondering what the problem was. Well, the problem was I was wearing the wrong jacket. I was wearing California jackets, and it wasn't until I actually got a winter jacket that I knew, finally, this year, I can endure through the winter. But it was because I had the wrong jacket, and so the question for us is, how do we endure? How do we suffer well? We understand that God is using suffering and trials to grow us in holiness, but how do we grow in hope? Because we titled this series Holiness and Hope, so we understand God uses these things to grow us in holiness, but but how do we grow in hope? Well, I think what Peter's going to point out to us, I think he points out four things for us as we go through chapter 5, 6 through 14. You can turn back to that. And these these are the four things he points out to us, is that we must be humble, we must be watchful, we must be resistant, and we must, must be patient. And really, humility is kind of the big overarching point there, knowing that in humility, we can and we will endure all things by God's grace, which is leading us to eternal glory in Christ. So that's the big takeaway for us. That's the encouraging hope that we can take as we cap off this book. So let's do that. Let's just read chapter 5, verses 6. I'm going to read all the way to the end, and then we're going to go back through it and unpack. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Verse 9, he says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We're going to hold it right there for now. 
So here's what's interesting about Peter, um, knowing that he is writing to churches, and there's a hum that I'm feeling right here, boys, some sort of a hum. Yes, it's up there. Great. Um, That's why we meet where we meet, because there's all kinds of noises and sounds. Here's what's interesting, right, about Peter, where he jumps into this, and we heard what uh, Mark preached last week, where if you go back a verse, he said, uh, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, and then he just dives right in here in verse 6, and he says, Humble yourselves then for. So in other words, he's saying, okay, so you're going to get this. So what I need you to do is humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, I don't know about you, but when someone is down, like when someone comes to me and says, man, life has been rough and things are really coming down on me. Like my first reaction to them is not to say, well, dude, you just need to humble yourself. I mean, what do you expect? You know, like, well, man, everything's beaten down on me. Humble yourself, bro. Like, that's not typically what we say to people when they come to us saying they're experiencing uh, these pressures and these trials in their life. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, talking about humility, he said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but rather it's thinking of yourself less, right? So what Peter is trying to do here when he talks about humility is he's trying to draw us out of ourselves because you know what happens a lot of times when we experience trials and suffering is we tend to become really self-consumed, right? And we can have a tendency to forget about Christ and his mercy and his grace and his kindness in our lives and we can kind of fold in on each, on, on ourselves. And then the question that comes up with that that might spring up in your mind is you say, but yeah, but doesn't I mean, do, doesn't, uh, doesn't suffering humble us? Like, doesn't it automatically humble us? Well, it's a good question, but I don't know if it automatically humbles us. I think what suffering can do is it can go one of two directions. It can either humble us or it can harden us. And I think what Peter's trying to draw out of these churches here is he's saying, let suffering be something that God uses in your life to humble rather than harden you, Right? In fact, if you go back to chapter 4, verse 19, we remember he said, entrust yourself. Entrust yourself like safekeeping. Entrust yourself to the character of God through these trials that you're going through. In other words, he's saying what you need to do is accept God's wisdom in your life. Accept the moving of God's divine wisdom in your life and the grace and mercy that comes with that divine wisdom, even though you can't see the further, the far-reaching outcome of what you might be going through, you have to accept and know that God does. So we can trust that God is in, in his infinite wisdom is bringing us through something to take us to a place that we can't yet see. So Peter is saying, humble yourselves. And then he says this, he doesn't just say humble yourselves, right? He doesn't just say, you know, become self-deprecating. Just start, you know, coming down on yourself, lowering yourself down. No, 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 because that wouldn't do anything but make us more about ourselves. That would actually be a form of pride. What Peter does, he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the what? The mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, right? So there's two words there that Peter leads us to. He says, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he. So what does he focus on there? But he focuses on God. Humility, first and foremost, is not necessarily for us, but it's to display the glory of God. Isn't that crazy? When we think of humility, we just think of ourselves, just, yes, I've been so humbled, I've been flattened, I don't think so highly of myself. Yeah, good, but really, at the, first and foremost, it's actually in place what God does is he humbles us, he calls us to humility to display his glory. And it's not for nothing. 
Because he says right here, it's humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And we think of the mighty hand of God, that's kind of Old Testament language, right? We think of the Israelites, right? We think of, uh, you know, uh, passages in Exodus that's to talk about God's mighty hand and his outstretched arm delivering his people. So what this calls us to remember today is that when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, we're dealing with a God that has a past reputation for deliverance. That helps us, doesn't it? I mean, that should help us, knowing the lengths that God has gone through throughout the ages with his people to deliver them and take them through the fire and take them through the trials that he takes them through so that at the proper time he may exalt them. Isn't that a weird line, though? At the proper time. So there's a time that God is bringing you through things, and it's unspecified for us right here. He doesn't say, like, how long that time is. He doesn't say the proper time, 23 minutes and 8 seconds after you go through that suffering, God's going to bring you to that particular place. He just says at the proper time, a time that we don't know, that actually is what helps build our trust and confidence in the Lord, that someday God is leading us to something, and at the proper time, he will exalt us. You know what that leads us to? It leads us to understanding that humility is, is courageous. It's a courageous act for us. So Peter isn't just saying, you know, man, just humble yourself. Just wake up tomorrow and humble yourself. He's actually calling these churches, these people, to an act of courage. He's saying, this is the present posture for you for future gain. That's what he's saying. And we understand that in our own language by this thing called delayed gratification, which we don't really understand that well, right? Like when we think of delayed gratification, we're not really in a culture that really pushes that, right? And let me just say that we're not really in a season right now that pushes that, but it does a little bit, right? Because when we talk about Christmas, when we talk about presents, um, we talk about something that we're all waiting to do, right? Delayed gratification. So like, in other words, if you have kids and you got all these gifts and they just woke up tomorrow and they found where all those gifts are and they took those gifts and they opened all those gifts, like you would not wake up just thinking, oh, that's great. You found the gifts. You opened the presents. Good. We're done. Christmas is over and we're glad you found your presents. Right? That, that would not be the reaction, I think, anybody, right? You, you'd be like, I'm furious, and Christmas is over, and I'm going to punish you forever after that act, right? But what we're really trying to teach our kids is, like, if it's good, it's worth waiting for. There's a delayed gratification. In a sense, this is where Peter is leading us. He says, so that in the proper time, he may exalt you. Well, Ronnie, isn't humility the, the opposite of, of exaltation? Is that why I go through this? So that I wait to be exalted? What, what does that mean? I mean, isn't that the opposite of, isn't humility the opposite of that? Well, yeah, it is when we seek it apart from, from God, right? But when God exalts us, when he lifts us up, when we are so low that it's only by the mighty hand of God that we know we've been lifted up, you know who receives the glory for that? Not us. We become a testimony to the glory and to the exaltation, not of us but the exaltation of God when that happens. So when God exalts us, God gets the glory for that exaltation. So how do we do that then? What is that path to humility? I mean, it's hard to be humble, right? It's hard to be humble when you're as great as we are, right? When you're as great as Substance Church is, right? It's hard to be humble. 
right? You guys should have laughed at that. That's insane that you didn't just laugh at that. But he says it right here in verse 7. Look at verse 7. He says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Piece of cake. We all got humility. Let me pray. We're out. Well, it's not quite that easy, but that is the path. He says, casting all your cares on him. Now, what Peter would have meant by casting, remember, Peter was a fisherman, so what he would have meant by casting is what they did when they caught fish back in the old, you know, they weren't doing like the reel and the line, right? But they had nets, and these were nets that were weighed down, and they would cast the nets, and the nets would fall down, and they would gather the fish. And so he's using that as kind of an analogy by saying, cast your cares like a net that's weighed down with anxiety. Cast those things on the Lord. Don't hold those things in. Don't try to work those things out. Don't think that you possess the answer for how to alleviate all cares. Give them to God because God is the God of all peace. And when we cast those cares on him, we experience that kind of peace that passes understanding. You know what's interesting about this for me is that humility is so hard, isn't it? Like humility is just incredibly hard because none of us are really very humble. You know, that's really the truth. Like the most humble guy in this room is not really even that humble, you know, because we think really highly of ourselves. And if we don't think incredibly highly of ourselves, we just think of ourselves a lot, right? So if it's, if it's not like we think really great, high, exalting thoughts of ourselves, it just means that we're just constantly thinking about ourselves, Right? And so what we ask and what, we, what we're really asking in those moments is, well, the reason why I don't want to humble myself is because what's the payoff? What's the payoff for humility in this life? You know, because that is not, humility is not, you know, part and parcel part of the world system to success and finance and money and relationships. It's counter. It's rebellion. Humility is rebellion, right? It's rebellion against the natural state and stature of our heart. It's absolute rebellion. But the payoff, since you asked, is the care and exaltation from God. That's the payoff for humility. So Peter is saying, hey, um, humble yourself. How do we endure? We humble ourselves. And then he goes into verse 8 and he says, be watchful, right? He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring, roaring lion, seeking, seeking someone to devour. I mean, that verse is insane. Like, that's an insane, who thinks that's an insane verse? Thanks, Scott. Um, but that's a crazy verse, right? Like, that verse does not sit well with us. I mean, it's 2016, and we're Americans, and we're Ohioans. That verse does not sit well with us. So how many of you have ever been around a, a, a drunk person? Oh, come on. How many of you have ever been a drunk person? <laughs> Thanks, Mark Petrus. I appreciate that. We're going to question that next time you're up here preaching. Yeah, nobody wants to raise their hand when I ask that second part, do they, right? But this is kind of what he's driving at when he says sober-minded, right? When we hear the word sober, we're automatically thinking of, man, am I so, like, is there sobriety in place? If I had too much to drink, am I, am I, do, I, do I have the mind to make good choices? You know, man, I just, so two weeks ago I took a flight to Dallas, you know, and you know how you're like sitting there and you're, you know, the, you're the, of course you're in group like Z, you're the last guy to get on the, the plane, you watch like the pilot, you know, kind of walking up, getting on the plane. I mean, I'm kind of hoping that dude's sober, Right? Like, I want him uh, to be so, I'm like, I'm hoping that he wasn't just coming from the bar, you know, before like getting, getting in place and flying us to Dallas. But that's what we think about when we think of the word sober-minded. Peter's saying, 
uh, you need to have the ability to make good choices. Be sober-minded, be sharp, be alert. And you know what this kind of calls to mind for us? Is that when we are going through trials and testing, you know what's interesting? Is that if we are not sober-minded, what's going to happen is, and maybe you find this in your own life, you're going to be making choices that resemble that of an unbeliever. Okay? Do you find yourself doing that? In other words, if you're not sober-minded, if you're not staying in prayer, if you don't have the discipline of staying focused and sharp and settled and rooted in God's word, you're not going to be very sober-minded, and you're going to make decisions that come from trials and suffering that actually have more in uh, line with, with the way unbelievers would make choices who aren't thinking clear, who don't accept God's wisdom in their life. But Peter is saying, be sober-minded. Then he says, be watchful. So what we know by this word watchful is that it, it's, it, it's, it's not... It's not out of order and out of line with, with humility, right? So humility is not passive. Sometimes we think humility is, is passivity, but humility is not passivity. And where we got our example, our original example of passivity in our lives is from Adam. You guys remember Adam and Eve? Adam was passive. He was the first passive man, right? He stood there while Eve was being tempted. And it says that he just stood by and he watched the whole thing unfold, right? Adam was not being watchful. He was being passive while his wife was being taken advantage of, was being tempted, was getting ready to give in to temptation. And what happened with his passivity? What happened by his lack of watchfulness? Well, he gave in to temptation with his wife eventually. That's what happened. And the thing about passivity that we know is that it's actually rooted in pride. To not do anything is actually a prideful act. And that's why the Bible leads us through sins of commission, sins that we commit, and then sins of omission, not doing the thing which we should be doing according to Scripture. And so Peter is telling his people here, his, his churches, he's saying, be watchful. Be watchful. And Peter would have remembered the night in the garden before Christ's death when Jesus was with them and he said, would you just stay awake and be watchful and pray? How did he tell them to be watchful? Well, he said to pray because he said temptation is lurking at the door and I don't want you to fall into temptation. So Peter is, again, he's exhorting these churches. He's saying be sober-minded, be watchful because it's slippery out. It's like this morning, right? It's slippery out there. I remember, man, I remember when I first came into, uh, you know, understanding this thing that we have here called ice, Right? And, you know, the first time I stepped on ice, not really knowing it was ice, right, because sometimes it's kind of invisible, and I remember, you know, fall, you know literally falling, look, uh, immediately looking around to see if anybody saw, because that's what's most important, not like the hip I broke. Um, but, you know, I, I remember thinking, well, man, that, that's painful, and I, I'm, I, I need to be a little more, you know, cognizant of what's going on on the ground, you know, like when I step out of my car. And um, what I found is that it, it, only, it always takes that first fall every winter for me to remember that there's ice, <laughs> On the ground, right? Because sometimes you just start walking. You're like, man, I think I, think I got my balance down now. Like, I, I think ice is not going to affect me anymore. You know, and then you're, you fall down and then you're dead. You know, you're, you're, you're gone. And, um, but it's something that we have to be aware of. Peter says, be sober-minded, be aware, be watchful, because you have an opponent. You have an adversary. He's talking about someone that's real. He's talking about Satan. He's talking about Lucifer. In Luke 22, Jesus said this crazy thing to Peter one time. He said, Peter, by the way, just so you know, here's some info for you. Satan has demanded to have you. 
and sift you like wheat. I mean, how would you love somebody coming up to you and saying, hey, I just had a chat with the devil, and he's been asking for you. That's what Jesus said to Peter, but then this is what he said to Peter. He said, but I've prayed that your faith not fail, okay? So some of you guys have grown up in traditions where um, maybe the devil and Satan gets talked about a lot, right? And it kind of raised up as being sort of this, this, sort of, uh, this all-powerful, all-consuming force uh, in the life of believers. Now, we need to have a balanced view uh, of what Scripture really tells us who Satan is and who the devil is. And he is somebody who is powerful. He is somebody that we don't want to just relegate to the side. But he's also somebody that we want to be very careful with not engaging with to that degree and to those levels because we actually have the Holy Spirit as believers living inside of us. And Peter's going to tell us what that means for us as we confront sort of this devouring process that the devil is all about and makes it his aim to do, to unwind us and to accuse us. Because look at how Peter describes uh, Satan. Again, we don't want to discount Satan. He says, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So he compares him to a, a lion, right? A lion. Like a lion would be, a lion would be like the opposite of the Cleveland Browns right now, right? Yeah. Sorry. Um, keeping it real here at Sub. Um, but, you know, so what happens is, like, if you get, like, if you ever find yourself, like, in a room and somebody lets a lion in, um, like, the lion's going to win. You know, the lion will be the victor. Like, the lion is the one that gets his way. The lion gets to decide what's happening between you and him. He compares our adversary with that of a roaring lion. And man, I mean, you guys have seen lions. I mean, probably not like in Ashland, but you've seen, like, go on YouTube and click like lion and zebra in Africa, right? And you're just going to see a lion go after a zebra and literally just go like mental on this guy, right? Like the zebra has a beautiful zebra, this beautiful striped coat. He looks all majestic. Done, right? The lion is in the picture. The lion wins. The lion gets the zebra. It's not like us playing with, you know, with our laser pointer, playing with our kitty cat and watching him, you know, kind of hop around the room and dive and jump and, you know, pat around. Um, you know, because of that, I'm literally never going to Africa now for a missions trip after saying all that. But that's the, that's the imagery we're given for a lion is that he is, Satan is our adversary. He prowls around. The question for us is, are we being eaten alive? Okay? Are we being devoured? Are we being devoured? Are we being devoured by the things that Satan brings to us that he has the ability to use in our lives to tempt us, to draw us from trusting in God's wisdom for when these trials are happening in our lives? Well, what do we do about that? Well, Peter tells us. He says, be resistant. So he says, be humble. He says, be watchful. And then he says, be resistant. He says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And this is an encouraging, encouraging passage and verse for us right here. He says, resist. What do we do about our adversary, the devil that prowls around? Well, it says we resist him. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Don't sit in dialogue with him. You resist him. You resist those things in your life that seek to devour you. That's what Peter's aiming at right here, right? Now, on a much lesser level, that's going to be happening to me over the next two weeks, right? 
because there's going to be all kinds of crazy Christmas food that I'm going to be trying not to devour. The question is, is it going to devour me? The answer is, yes, it is. <laughs> because I'm telling you, man, I, there's going to be food there, and then it's going to look like when I go to bed at night, it's all gone, and then like, I wake up in the morning, and like it's all there again. It's like Groundhog's Day for food. I wake up every morning, and it's just replenished, right? And I, and I don't know what to do about that. But it's like that. Those are the things that devour us. Peter tells us to resist and be firm in our faith. Be like a pillar. Be firm in our faith. And again, this is what he says, and this is what's interesting. He says, be be firm in your faith. Don't be firm in yourself. Because in and of ourselves, we don't have what it takes to resist. But he says, be firm in your faith. How do we do that? Well, we do that by diving in ferociously to God's Word. Are you a student of the Word? That's my question for you. Do you love God's Word? Do you discipline yourself to dive into God's Word? Do you take Ephesians 6 seriously when it says we don't battle against flesh and blood? We battle against spiritual forces in dark places. I'm not trying to be all comic book on you right now, right? You know, that, those, are the, those are the movies that are being made right now. You know, Marvel movies where everything's dark and, you know, there's characters dressed in tights and, you know, they're the ones that are saving the world. But really what, what the Bible tells us is that there's something beneath and beyond just our flesh and blood struggles. And really what they're aimed at is the heart. And these principalities, these spiritual powers in high places, they're there to unravel our hearts. They're there to devour our hearts. So the question is, how do we resist? Well, we resist by knowing and understanding and believing and affirming the Word of God. That's the challenge for us in 2017, to be a church that doesn't just say, yeah, I believe that Bible book, but to actually know that book that you claim to believe and to make it, make it something that is so ingrained in a part of your daily life that when those attacks come, when those accusations come, because that's really what, what Peter's talking about when he uses this word adversary, when these slanderers come and these accusers come into your life, you have the word of God to be able to resist and be firm in your faith. Because you know what? Your body is not naturally firm. We are not naturally firm. For those of you guys who have become CrossFitters, um, we know you're CrossFitters because all you do is talk about being a CrossFitter all day and all night long, and we appreciate that. But the reason why you're a crossfitter is because you were not born with a crossfitter body, right? That's not what's natural to us. You, you wake up in the morning, you wake up early, you engage in something that is going to firm you up. And that's what God's Word does for us. It makes us firm in our faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our brotherhood throughout the world. And you know what's encouraging about that? What's encouraging is that um, we don't go through trials and suffering because somehow we've fallen outside of the faith. Peter's saying, no, those who are within the faith are going through these trials, are going through these sufferings, and you can remember your brothers. You can remember your brothers. You know, we're a little self-protected here in, in Ashland, aren't we? But there are brothers that suffer. I mean, just click on Yahoo. There's a thing going on in Syria right now. 
There are brothers and sisters that are suffering. What do we do about that? Well, there's a lot of things we can do about that. And maybe you feel called to do some really proactive things in ways that you can tangibly help. But you know what you can always do? You can always pray. You can always pray that the brothers and sisters in other parts of the world that are suffering to those degrees that we are not suffering over, that they would be firm in their faith. That God would firm them up. That's the body of Christ coming together to, in a sense, help each other become firm in our faith. So Peter says, be humble, be watchful, be resistant. And then in verse 10 there, what I think he's implying is that we can be patient. He says, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. The great reminder there is that there is an after to our suffering. After you have suffered a little while. Again, he doesn't specify the time. He doesn't give us a time limit with it, but he does say that there's an after. And then more than that, he says it's the God of all grace. In other words, everything that you need to endure has been accomplished in Christ by God. And so the God of all the different kinds of graces that you need. See, we say grace is this blanket term, and it is. But grace is also individualized graces that come out into your life that give you the ability to endure. He's the God of all grace. Grace for all trials. Grace for all kinds of firmness that needs to happen in your life rather than experiencing that kind of flounder. And the reason why you will receive this grace is because, again, it says it right here. It, Peter bringing us back to the very beginning. He has called you to his eternal glory, this eternal weight Right, This internal otherness, this eternal, heavy, significant weight of God. God being God. God doing everything God is going to do to make himself glorious, which includes giving you all the grace that you need to endure through everything. Which leads us to eternity with Christ. And so with this all earthly suffering, you know what Peter is saying here is that it reminds us of our heavenly future. And he just says this repeatedly in chapter 5, verse 1, 4, verse 13, 2, verses 12. We are being called to something that is not yet, but it's something that we have the hope and promise of in the future. And then this is what he says. This is what he says after we have suffered a little while. This is his promise to us. Read this as a promise because it is a promise. And God doesn't fail in his promises. He says he's going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish, right? And I love that word restore. We should have named the church restore. But I love that word restore. You think about things being brought back to their original, beautiful, brand new condition, right? I mean, you guys are probably all watching Fixer Upper with Chip and Joanna. And what do they do? They go into these old houses. And what do they do with those houses? They, they restore them. They restore. They return to their original and beautiful condition. Whatever has been lost, this is what it means. Listen, whatever has been lost due to suffering will be replaced. That's what Peter's saying. And then he's saying confirm and strengthen and establish. He's going to confirm himself. He's going to remind you that, no, 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 indeed, you are his. It's okay. You're still God's. You are still God's. And he's going to strengthen and establish. He's going to make you strong where trials and suffering have made you weak. He promises to do that. He's going to settle you. He is going to return you to him. And then, of course, Peter finishes with this doxology, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
And what we learn by that is in a world where so much evil reigns and how we are affected by so much of the fallenness of our nature, God has ultimate reign. And we can remember that God is never, ever, ever for one single solitary second out of sovereign control. It's what Scott told us this morning as we sang, he has searched me. God is not out of control. We are out of control. God never loses control. That's why we don't have ultimate control. But we can trust in the control of God. And then what we see here as we go through verses 12 through 14, very quickly, these are final greetings by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. Uh, this would have, this would, Silvanus is another name for Silas, somebody that would have, they're guessing, uh, uh, tradition tells us, accompanied Paul on some of his missionary journeys, maybe penned this letter for Peter, maybe delivered this letter for Peter to the churches. He says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. So Peter's saying, believe what I'm saying. Believe the apostolic authority that I have as I write this word. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And then he gives greetings from the churches. Verse 13, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. So it's not just you going through these things. This is the church in Rome who is also going to be suffering things. Who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark. This would have been John Mark. This would have been the author of the Gospel of Mark. Who, uh, who was a mentor to Peter, not his biological son, but a mentor, somebody Peter helped. And he says, Mark gives you greetings. Greet one another with the kiss of love. That doesn't mean we got to you know, uh, kiss each other after the service is over. We do handshakes and hugs now. You're, you're welcome to kiss. I, I would maybe ask if that's cool before you do that when you're greeting one another. And then he ends with this, and I think this is the most significant part, is peace to all of you who are in Christ. That's how he caps this. And honestly, everything is contained that he said in that line. Peace to all of you who are what? In Christ. And Christ is where all of this leads us. All right, This humility, this watchfulness, this resistance, this patience. This is what we see in the life of Christ. Christ was humble. For the joy, he endured the cross. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. Christ was watchful. Remember in Matthew 16, he rebukes Peter, but he says, get thee behind me, Satan. Right? He resisted Satan. He stood firm in his faith. He was resistant. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, it says he was tempted as we were. He went through the same temptations as we did, but without sin. He didn't cave in. He didn't give in to those temptations. He was resistant. And, of course, we see his patience with Peter and with these disciples, these dudes that he trained and he mentored. And on the night before his death, they flee. They leave him. They're nowhere to be found. And yet he rises again and he calls them back to himself and he loves them and he's patient with them. Nobody experienced this more deeply than Peter. So this is how we endure. We endure because Christ endured. We endure because he endured for us already. The hope is that we can, and not only can we, but we will endure. That's the message of 1 Peter. We will endure through trials, which will produce holiness, and in that holiness we will have hope. Christ endured to be your endurance. It's not your own endurance. You know why? Because you don't have any. 
We don't possess endurance. We possess something that looks like endurance, but it quickly fades out. We need Christ's endurance, and he endured to be our endurance. And you know what that endurance looks like? It looks like Christ being more firmly planted in us by his word. So, a couple of things as we close. Are you being sifted like wheat? Do you feel like that in your life right now? Does your faith feel unsteady? Does it feel immature? Does it feel like you cycle through the same things over and over again? You know, sometimes we have seasons in our life that are like that. And God doesn't love us any less in those seasons. Did he love Peter any less? Christ's love for Peter never wavered because Christ has a love that is unwavering. See, we change. Every, every time we wake up in the morning, there's something different going on. Our emotions, our feelings, they fluctuate. They change. But we're not dealing with somebody who is like us. We're dealing with a God who is unchangeable, which means his love for us doesn't change. So the exhortation for us this morning is to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. Because here's what's interesting. Without Christ, you will simply endure to get through. That's what endurance will be for you in this life. You will endure to get through. But if you have Christ, if Christ is living in your heart, if you pursue Christ, if he is living and breathing in your life and in your heart, you endure to get to there's a dramatic and significant difference because you're either going to get through something or you're going to get to someone. And in Christ, we already have him, but we're also getting to him. And the encouragement is that we will. We will. What did we just sing in Come Thou Fount? Safely guide us home. Everybody in Christ makes it home. We make it home because we have a living hope, because we've been born again. Peter endured because Jesus endured. Because for Peter, Jesus was the God of all grace who had called him to an eternal glory in himself. And through all the suffering and all the trials and all the craziness of Peter's life, he had a peace because he was in Christ, and Christ was in him. And all of this was leading to an eternal glory that he had an unwavering and sometimes wavering hope that would be his future. That's us. If you submitted your life in repentance and belief in the gospel, that's us. Let's pray. God, thank you for the hope that we have, that you've given us, that you've graciously and mercifully given us in Christ. I pray that we would humble ourselves under your mighty hand, remembering that when we cast our anxieties on you, you care for us, and you will give us peace. Lord, give us a watchfulness, give us a resistance, give us patience, Lord. Help us to look to Christ for our model and our example. 
Give us the hope that we have because of the cross. Because you sent Jesus, because of that humble birth, we can humble ourselves like Christ and we can know the truth. And we know that you will bring us safely home. We know that all we have is Christ because that's all we need. And Lord, I pray that you would ever, ever press this more deeply and graciously and lovingly into our hearts as we seek to know you, as we seek to be more deeply conformed to your son this year. We pray all these things in Jesus' name we said together. Amen. Amen.